Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast, where we teach doctrine from God's Word. We're glad that you've joined us for the podcast. However, there is no substitute for being a part of a local body of believers. If you don't have a church home, visit us at restorationhcn.org to see if there's a house church or other faithful Bible-believing church near you. For now, here's this week's message. Um, here's what we're going to do. It is Palm Sunday, and uh, on Palm Sunday, we normally try to do something to kind of set us up for Easter. Um, and so today, we are actually going to continue our series on the attributes of God, but we're specifically going to zero in on God's righteousness and holiness, because they are both directly important as we talk about Christ's atoning sacrifice. Uh, so just in the interest of a quick review, um, we're going to go through, we've been going through the series on the attributes of God. And as you all know, we typically do teaching in some kind of a verse-by-verse format. We're normally going through a book of the Bible together. And so um, it's kind of a divergence from the norm for us to be in more than one or two passages. But that's what we're going to do today. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation, uh, I'm sorry, not Revelation, Romans 1, 16 and 17. We're going to be in several passages, uh, but this is going to be kind of our anchor text. Uh, now, the nature of studying a doctrine means that when we are studying it, we're going to have to address various passages. So that's why we're not just trying to jump around. We're not trying to take verses out of context, but we do want to look at the whole counsel of Scripture uh, so that together you all can see, okay, here's, here's how this doctrine plays out throughout the whole of God's word. Uh, so quick review, though, um, when we talk about God's attributes, uh, we divide them into two categories. We have communicable and incommunicable. Communicable are those attributes that, uh, that have some type of a finite human reflection. Um, incommunicable are things that are only true of God and no other being. Uh, so I know this is review, but when we talk about God's incommunicable attributes, we refer to his aseity, that he is totally self-sufficient and independent. He does not need us at all. Uh, we refer to his immutability, that he is unchanging from everlasting to everlasting. For all eternity, he is the same. Um, he is uniquely one in nature. We refer to his unity. God cannot be divided up. You can't pull apart one uh, attribute from another. He is always God. He is always one. And then God's infinity, that he has no limitations other than the limitations that are self-limitations because of his nature. Uh, so similarly, we jump over to God's attributes that are communicable. We talk about his spirituality. He is spirit. He's the source of life. We could say of us, yeah, we have a spirit. We have a spirit. We are spiritual beings, not in the same way as God is, but in a reflection um, of God's nature. Now we have a little bit of spirituality. Um, we have intellect. Um, God is omniscient, that is all-knowing, omnisapient, that is perfectly wise. He is he has veracity, that he is perfectly true. And we can say that, well, we have knowledge, we have wisdom, we have truth, but on finite levels, right? Similarly, we can talk of God's sovereignty, that he has a perfect will and perfect power. I have a will, I have some strength, but those things cannot be compared fully to the way God is. God's sovereign will cannot be thwarted. My will can be thwarted. Uh, God's sovereign power cannot be stopped. My power can be stopped. Um, so hopefully you can kind of see that these are a reflection of we have in our human nature as, as image bearers of God these kind of finite things 
but with God, they're perfect, they're eternal. Um, the last little bit here is God's moral attributes, which is what we're going to jump in today. Um, when we talk about his moral attributes, um, we normally can divide them into roughly three categories. Um, we have his goodness, which is his benevolence, his love, his grace, his mercy, his long-suffering. And what you'll note is that we're going to be addressing those today, but that's not going to be the primary thing we're going to teach on, because we're going to focus on the righteousness and holiness of God. So, uh, and we're about to get to the passage, by the way, but I want to define some terms here so that we, when we come to Romans 1, 16 and 17, we understand the weight of what Paul says here. And so to do that, I want to talk about this, this term righteousness and what it means. The Greek word is dikaiosune, and it's, it, it has this pretty profound meaning. It means that which conforms to a standard or strict adherence to the law. And so when we're saying this, first thing we need to acknowledge is that God operates in perfect conformity to his nature. Oh, it, a lot of times when we talk about righteousness, there's almost always a, a clear understanding of adherence to a law or a standard. But God does not have a standard outside of himself that he has to align with. God's adherence to the standard, God's righteousness means that he is in perfect conformity to his own nature for all eternity. And if I could just kind of lean in on that and say, this is really important, especially as it relates to the atonement. Everybody following me? Hopefully we're good on that. It's making sense. All right, cool. The interaction is not the same online, so it's hard to tell, <laughs> but I think you guys are with me. <laughs> You're really smiling. Um, good stuff. So understanding that, that's going to be really important as we address the atonement fully later, that God has to always be in perfect conformity to his nature. He can't wink at sin because he's perfectly righteous. He can't compromise his nature for anything. Cool. So now when we talk about righteousness and justice, it's important to understand that these are really the same word in the New Testament. We translate the word in English into two different words, righteousness and justice. But that one word, the kayasune, is that word that gets translated in both things. So the next thing I've got to kind of do is recognize that there is a different connotation for the English words. Keep it in mind, there's only one Greek word, but when we're translating them, there are times where we're trying to give one, one, under, one, one more pro pronounced understanding of the word as opposed to the other. So when we translate the kayasune as righteousness, we're talking about lawful condition acceptable to God's nature. We're talking more of like adhering to the law, right, when we talk about righteousness. When we talk about justice, when we translate Dikaiosune as justice, we're usually referring to the virtue that involves giving to each his or her due. So if there's, there's not a real good way to divide them, again, because they really are supposed to be one word. But you recognize that typically when we're talking about righteousness in English, we're referring to, hey, this is a person who meets the standard. When we're talking about justice, we're usually talking about uh, the, I don't like this term, but equity in interactions, or we're talking about due penalty for what when someone has wronged that standard. So normally the justice is the application of that righteousness. Everybody making sense on that? Cool. All right. All these things are really important as we approach Romans 1, 16 and 17. Um, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray one more time. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he is submitting the theme to the passage here. 
He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want to just lean in and draw some attention to this. Uh, You all might remember that when we talked about beginning this series on the attributes of God, the purpose was so that we could worship God for who he is, so that we could see this is who God is, the God of creation, the God who has revealed himself. This is who he is. And in recognizing that and understanding who he is, I can worship him appropriately. So here, when Paul is referring to God's righteousness, when he's referring to the gospel, he says that what he's loving about the gospel is not merely that I'm saved, although that's wonderful, but what's really wonderful about the gospel, the ultimate purpose in it, is that God's righteousness is being revealed through faith. If I can just lean in and and bring as much attention to that as possible, that we recognize that our salvation in Christ is wonderful news for us, but the end is not merely that we get blessed. The end is that God receives glory because he's revealed his righteousness. Now, keeping in mind here, we talk about the kind of the, the two English translations for this one Greek word are righteousness and justice. What you'll see is both of those aspects are playing out in the gospel. God is showing that he requires perfect adherence to his nature. But then he is also showing that his justice must be poured out. And that those two things are very clearly coming together in the atonement. Cool? All right. Hopefully this gets us excited a little bit. Reading on then. So when we talk about God's righteousness, we see his righteousness playing out all throughout the Old and New Testaments, all the way back into, we could say from the very beginning, God gives a command to Adam and Eve, and he's essentially saying, I want you to obey me and not anything else. Even from the very beginning, God is delivering his law. He's communicating his righteousness from creation. But we see it play out after the fall in his communication of the law. We see in Exodus 20 and following in Leviticus and in other parts, God in his law is communicating that he is righteous, that he is perfect, and that for us to be in relationship with him, we have to have that same level of righteousness. And we can see, we see it not only played out in the law, but we see it played out in the prophets, in the Psalms, as we will see in the New Testament. So I've just highlighted a few key passages here. In Ezra 9, 6, um, the, the, the prophet saying, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant, a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. No one can stand before you because of this. Understand that like, not only does God give the law where he's showing our need to be perfectly righteous, but then in Ezra and the prophets, the Ezra is saying, it's, hey, man, we just don't stand before you, God, with anything other than condemnation apart from you, because you are just, you are righteous, you are perfect, and we are not. Psalm 145, 17 says, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways, kind in all his works. You will also note in Revelation Verse chapter 16, verses 5 and 9, he says, And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, 
who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Hopefully we can kind of see, and we would see it in the Gospels, we would see it in the Epistles, we're now seeing it in Revelation. From the very beginning, all the way through Scripture, all the way to the end of all things, God is communicating His righteousness. But in addition, so when we understand his righteousness, that he has to be in perfect adherence to his, uh, his nature as a standard, that he has to always be righteous, that immediately throws us over into this understanding of holiness. Um, God's holiness is this other attribute, and as if we would always say, all of God's attributes go together. They're all knit together in this union. You can't really parse them out. But God's holiness seems to be kind of uniquely connected to his righteousness, at least as it appears to us. In Hebrew, we have the word kadosh. In Hebrew, in Greek, we have the word hagios. We talk about this word. We talk about God's holiness, both in the Old Testament and the New. Holiness means separatedness. It's the idea that God being holy is completely transcendent. He is majestic. He is something other than, a better way to say, he is something greater than anything else that is. Subsequently, he is morally holy, separate from all evil. And so we need to have a proper understanding, this holy fear of God that leads us to worship and serve him. So hopefully we're starting to understand something here. God is communicating his, righteous, his righteousness that he always has to be in perfect alignment with his own nature. And that the standard of righteousness is not an arbitrary law. It is God's own nature. And in him giving us his law, he's giving us legal code. He's given us all these other things. He's communicating to us just how holy he is, or at least a glimpse of it, just how righteous he is, that is. And now we start to understand not he is so righteous, he cannot be in association with anything that is unjust or unrighteous. And so as such, he is separated out. He is uniquely set apart. Morally, yes, but also, as we've talked about all these other attributes, that God is, God is powerful on a whole other level. He is wise on a whole other level. He is, he is unique in every aspect. And so in all of these other attributes, he's also holy. He is uniquely set apart because there is no being like him. He is the God of creation that is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly true. He is perfectly wise. He's perfectly powerful. Everything about God is holy because he is, in, in a way that no one else is, he is set apart holy. So let's look at some passages in Scripture here. And all the while, I want you to think about that, that God's righteousness is part of this holiness. So Psalm 22.3, he says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Leviticus 19.2, going to the law, it says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Going into the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Isaiah 6.2 getting into the prophets, Isaiah says above him, he's talking about his, Isaiah is speaking here of his, his, his vision of seeing God enthroned. 
And he says, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I want to just take a minute and recognize, we've, we've talked about God's righteousness, we've talked about his power, we've talked about all these things. Now we're talking about how he is uniquely set apart. In fact, he is so set apart that there are angels in heaven, seraphim, whose sole job is to be around the throne, worshiping God specifically for his holiness. Uh, you'll note here that the word holy in, in Hebrew it would be kavod. Uh, I'm sorry, kadosh. Uh, kadosh, 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 or it might be kavod. I'm going to translate it wrong. I'm sorry. The idea, though, is that this superlative of using something three times, that the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. You, you, couldn't make, you couldn't set it apart anymore by saying it a fourth time. The idea of using the term three times in Hebrew literature, and arguably in most literature, when you repeat a thing three times, it's, it means to the, to the utmost degree. And so the seraphim are, are flying around the throne saying of God, holy, 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 superlatively holy is the Lord of hosts. He is set apart and the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, paying attention to that, recognizing all that, that he's perfectly righteous, and then he is to the superlative degree set apart. Keep in mind all that as we look at Revelation 4, 8 through, 8 through 11. Where now it's not Isaiah speaking here, it's not the Old Testament prophet speaking, but it is John the Revelator in the New Testament, Revelation 4, 8 through 11, and he writes this. He says, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This should sound very, very familiar. It says, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Uh, are you hopefully following what's happening here? Paul communicates in Romans that the gospel is about God's righteousness being revealed. And then we talked about how part of God's righteousness, fundamental to his righteousness, is that he has to be in perfect adherence to his own nature. And as a result of that and other things, the, the, the aspect of his holiness plays in so clearly that he, has, he cannot be in association with anything that is sin. But ultimately, all of this comes back to God receiving glory for who he is to the degree that in the Old Testament in Isaiah and in the New Testament in Revelation, we see that there are angels whose sole 24-hour, the entire reason they were created is to fly about saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That should allow us to look at God's righteousness and his holiness and say, God, you are something other than we can ever imagine. You are something far beyond. The result should always be worship. 
But for those who are not in Christ, the result is fear. You will note that in the communications about righteousness and holiness, several of the passages we address relate to God's just judgment on those who are in rebellion against him. And so um, as we kind of lean into this a little bit more, I think we should recognize something critical. And that's that if God in his righteousness has to always adhere to his own nature, and that nature is perfectly moral, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, then that means that if I do not meet that perfect standard, if I am not on the same level of righteousness and holiness as the God of creation, then it means he cannot be in relationship with me. And it also means that if he is going to be true to his nature, justice require his justice, his nature requires that there be punishment for my sin. And so hopefully we're all believers on here reading this and we're, we're, we're thankful, but I can't, I can't skip over this. We need to acknowledge that God's righteousness means that he's going to have to pour out his wrath on sin. So this is where the atonement comes in. This is where Christ comes in. In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter writes of Jesus, and he says he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and alive for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. In, verses, uh, in chapter 3, verse 18, Peter writes again, and he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Um, I hope I've fully communicated the intense reality that we're facing. Uh, because there are those who would say, okay, well, if God is gracious and if God is loving, then why does he need to judge sin? Why can't he just like let it go? And I think we would have to say, well, wouldn't that that would, that would be against his nature. Like, God can't just pretend the sin didn't happen. That would actually make him unjust, and he cannot act in, in something that is not in accordance with his nature. For God to remain righteous for eternity, for God to remain who he is, and he will, he always will, he can't not be who he is. If that's going to happen, he's got to judge evil. Uh, an illustration I heard somebody use is if you can imagine a, a man walking down the street seeing another man abuse a child and he just went on his way ignoring it, we wouldn't say that that was something good or loving in that man that he ignored the sin. And so it is, we can't call it righteousness or love if God looks at even our own sin and pretends like it didn't happen or it didn't matter. We have offended the God of creation with our sin. We have, we have, in some cases, caused great harm upon others with our sin. That sin has to be paid for. And that's why, as we see Peter mentioned here, that is why the atonement is so important. That Christ, being perfectly righteous, died on the cross, and God poured out his wrath towards sin on Jesus Christ, who suffered in our place. In so doing, the wrath of God, the, in the, the Keith and Kristen Getty song in Christ Alone communicates how the wrath of God was satisfied 
in that. And then this way, God's righteousness gets to stay his righteousness. And yet his grace gets to play out perfectly. He doesn't wink at sin. He looks at it, sees it for what it is, and punishes it accordingly. It is heavy. And I would point out that for those of us who have, and all of us, I think, have suffered wrong from someone else, and in some cases, great wrong. Uh, As a pastor, I've had communication with people who have been abused in terrifying ways. Um, To be able to realize that God doesn't wink at that sin is actually quite comforting. That God doesn't look at it and say, oh, well, no big deal. God's punishing it. And that that sin, every one of those sins, is either paid for, if that person is a repenting believer, is either paid for by Christ's atoning death on the cross, or that person will pay for it through eternal judgment of God's wrath in hell. And I think it's an okay thing, it's more than okay, that I worship God for his wrath just as much as for his grace. And I'm so thankful for his grace, but I am thankful that he is just and he doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't wink at my sin and he doesn't wink at your sin. He pours out his wrath on all sin. And this is why the death of Christ was so powerful that he allowed that wrath. He willingly allowed the wrath of God to be poured out on him so that it would not be poured out on the believing That's really good news. So I'm going to review very quickly what I hope all of you already know, and most of you have communicated this, but I'm I'm not going to skip over the gospel here. This is why we look at Romans 3.23, and Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's righteousness is revealed. His righteousness, we see his perfection and his holiness. He's perfectly adhering to his own law himself. And we've sinned against that. And so there is no hope of our own ability for us to be restored back to God and his glory. We've all fallen short. So Romans 6.23 goes on to say that the payment, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That the result of our sin is separation from the God of creation, who is the source of all life and the source of all things. And on the outside of that, he is going to pour out his wrath on us. It's not just death in this, oh, I'm not connected to God anymore. It's that his wrath will be poured out on us unless we are in Christ. And that's why he says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we skip on down to Romans 10, 9, and 10, where I believe it clearly communicates the the act of conversion. And verses 9 and 10, it says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess faith, your faith, and are saved. Very simple, that when we are coming to faith in Christ, it is not a matter of works because we've already fallen short of the standard of righteousness and we can't get back to the perfect righteousness that is God's own standard of his nature. But I can repent of my sin turn to Christ, make Jesus my Lord, and acknowledge his atoning death and resurrection that allows for the righteousness of God, that same perfect righteousness that I stand condemned before, that in Christ 
I get that righteousness transferred to me as my sin was transferred to Christ and he paid for it on the cross. This is the message of the gospel. This is why Easter matters. This is why we still talk about the atonement. It's why we still believe in the wrath of God, because without all this, then God isn't God. And let me tell you, the fact that he is who he says he is, is good news. It's the best news. And this is why Paul in Romans 1 says, by it, the righteousness of God, by the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That means you, in putting your trust in Jesus and allowing your and, and knowing that your sin was paid for by Jesus, means you are bringing God's glory because His righteousness is being revealed in your atonement. Man, it's good news. So what I would love to do is pray, and then we'll go to some fellowship here. Um, I want to take some time and pray and thank God for the amazing thing that he has done in the atonement. Um, next week, we'll, uh, as we're, in, we're going to be in house churches next week together, probably online, but um, we'll be together with our house churches individually. And we're going to celebrate the resurrection that Jesus died for our sin. Today, I would love to take a little bit of time and think about what he did in paying for our sin and that he was showing his righteousness and his justice and bringing himself glory in all that he has done. Man, it makes me thankful uh, that I'm out of hell and in with Jesus. But man, it also makes me want to just give him glory. So if you would join with me in prayer, uh, Father, Thank you so very much for what you have done. Thank you that you are perfectly righteous. You are perfectly holy. You deserve glory. And that even in your gospel plan to redeem us, you've brought yourself glory by revealing your righteousness. You have shown us how perfectly holy you are, how perfectly righteous you are, and subsequently how just you are in pouring out your wrath for every sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed. And for those of us who believe our sin was paid for as you poured out your wrath on your son, Jesus. And for the unbelieving, you will still pour out your wrath. But no matter what, the wrath of God will be satisfied. You receive glory. And Lord, we get to stand here and say thank you because we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so we thank you for all this. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Restoration Church Podcast. The more positive reviews we get, the more people can find out about the podcast. So please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. For more information, visit restorationhcn.org.